Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us today is the Metapunk himself, Theo Priestley. Theo is a futurist, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's a founder, um, and just a, an all-around expert on many of the subjects that we love to talk about on this podcast. So we are absolutely thrilled to have him on today. Theo, thank you so much for being here, my friend. Uh, Adam, Ryan, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. I would love to get started today just by asking you a question that I think will kind of get to the heart of why we have this podcast in the first place and why we're excited to talk to you today. Um, before I do that, I'm going to just give a little background. You know, Adam and I have been in education for a long time. You know, both of us have made our careers here. Um, and both of us kind of tend to stick out like sore thumbs because we, we love technology in a, in a field that tends to be the last adopters, right? Um, yeah. We tend to be behind the curve here. And uh, one of the reasons why we started Ready Teacher One and called it Ready Teacher One, other than, of course, you know, parodying off of Ready Player One, is that we want teachers to be ready for what's coming up. We want teachers to be ready for the future. We want this next generation of educators to, to capitalize on opportunities um, in, in tech that maybe previous generations of educators haven't. So all that to say, we're excited to talk to you about uh, the metaverse, which we know that you are an expert on. And, and we would love to just start off by asking you, you know, for those of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that term, um, what is the metaverse and why do you think educators should care about it? Um, I think to put it into easier frame of reference, I think when you said you've, you've riffed this podcast off Ready Player One, um, it's uh, Ready Player One is probably a, a good example of what a metaverse could look like. So we it's a digital extension of this world that we live in, the physical world, where people can actually create an avatar and engage uh, in a completely 3D and immersive environment. Um, the other perfect example is Second Life, which has been going for you know two, roughly longer than two decades now or so, um, which again is, is a 3D uh, environment that was built to allow people to essentially go in work and play you know uh, in the early days big brands came in like oracle and ibm and built offices in second life with the, the sole purpose of um, engaging with clients showing them what's possible in the metaverse um, you know conducting business and to this day people are still in there They've made digital goods. They do goods and services and consulting. They build houses. You know, they build, they've built a business and a life in this environment, in this 3D environment. And it's not just about games. Um, one of the things which I see at the moment being written about quite a lot is um, this, this is all about entertainment. You know, Facebook wants to do it. And we're all just going to be running around with avatars, pretending that we know what to do and, and, and things like that. But it's very much a business tool as well. Um, a lot of the revenue and a lot of the drive behind building the metaverse itself will come from industry. So education, I see, is one. Then uh, manufacturing, digital twin, which takes into you know real-time data and things like that. City planning, for example, as well. You know, but a defense is going to be a huge, you know, is going to be a huge consumer of this because they want to play out big level simulations at scale to understand what could happen if something you know you know god forbid another attack or you know someone dropped a bomb or, or how do i plan if i want to evacuate a city for example you know that kind of thing so it's you know there's massive massive potential in this 
Um, and I see also that, you know, you're talking about education, but, you know, I wrote a post today, which is, you know, forget Gen Alpha, let's talk about Gen M, which is, you know, after Generation Alpha, who's the next generation? What are they? And these people that will be born in the next sort of five years will be the ones who will build their lives around living in this digital environment. And if that's the case, what what do we need to do, you know, uh, as leaders to prepare for that? Because they'll be asking, I want to be taught in this, you know, for education. I want to be engaged in this manner. I, mean, I don't want to read a book and I don't want to sit in a lecture hall. I, you know, I want you to engage me and fully immerse me in this, you know, as part of my learning. Uh, and so, you know, we need to start thinking ahead, really 10 years ahead of ourselves. So Theo, and I, I absolutely love the idea of thinking 10 years ahead. You know, we know that by 2027, we'll have a billion headsets out there in the wild. What do you think the limitations are right now in 2021 to be able to have a school that's delivered fully in the metaverse, an online school offering? Where, what, what, what are the limitations if there are some and what would we need to, what, what, what would need to advance in order to have school completely in the metaverse as an alter, alternative to the checkerboard of faces or Zoom school that we saw during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we need, uh, we need more investment in the tools. So at the moment, we're kind of limited towards uh, a couple of game engines, which are standout examples, which are Unity and, and Unreal Engine. So educators and the people who set the educational policies need to understand that investment is required to build a skill set around developing on those tools. The second thing is, is to start thinking about accessibility. So you mentioned headsets, um, which I'm, I'm going to do good cop, bad cop here, because I think headsets are actually um, uh, the limiting factor because you're immediately cutting out people who, you know, um, there are 7 billion mobile phones in the world. Let's put it that way, okay? Um, most of them are smartphones. The key to making the metaverse really accessible and ubiquitous is via the web. If I want to engage, all I need to do is ping you a URL and you're in. If we limit that to giving, saying, oh, it needs to be a headset and you need to have a PC strong enough to run it and you need to have a client and something to download, then immediately you're starting to cut off um, a lot of people um, who don't have the funds for it and things like that. But if you can give someone access to the metaverse via uh, a mobile device and all they need is a, U a web URL, um, and that's them inside the environment, then, you know, bingo, you've, you've got a captive audience there. Um, I think there's a, there is a bit of a sort of education, <laughs> there's a bit of education in, in terms of, uh, you know, the industry to sort of let people know that it's not just all about um, putting on a HoloLens or putting on an HTC Vive. You know, you can give this immersive technology to everybody um, in different ways. And one of them is, you know, through a web browser on a mobile phone, on a tablet, which is cheap now as well, that kind of sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think the from an investment, I mean, if you look at Minecraft, you know, educators have been using Minecraft. People have been building environments in Minecraft, teaching kids about forestry management, for example. One of the earlier examples was, um, you know, teachers using it to, to teach kids, um, you know, if there was a fire in the forest, let's watch how a fire would spread. And then how would you actually stop the spread of that fire um, because it's still real it's kind of still real world physics even though it looks like lego bricks in the inside um, but it gives 
kids that frame of reference. I know how to build things in Minecraft. So now I know a little bit about forestry management and the spread of a fire, you know, so the next time they start, you know, they see horrible world news right now, they could, they've got something to relate to. Um, and it's that kind of relation that, that we, we can bring with the metaverse as well, bringing it in context um, in environments that kids are used to rather than paper and pen and, and things like that. That's tremendous. Theo, we know that uh, the term metaverse, you know, kind of had its origin in uh, the novel Snow Crash, um, yeah. which was written before the World Wide Web, before social media, before mobile devices had really taken off. Um, for someone that's coming to this conversation, whose only background might be science fiction, uh, what are some of the ways that, you know, they got these predictions surprisingly accurate? And what are some of the ways that, hey, you need to know that this is actually different from how science fiction portrays it? Yeah, I think, um, so Neil kind of sort of wrote it from a very sort of dystopian point of view. And you've got examples like The Matrix and things like that. And then you've got Ready Player One, which is a very kind of, you know, um, Ready Player One. What was the other one as well? Lawnmower Man. If you're old, if you're as old as I am, you remember that one as well. Um, and everything comes around in cycles. Um, I think it, it's interesting to to see Hollywood depictions and science fiction depictions as um, portents of where things could go wrong. So um, one is that the, our imagination is always way ahead of the technology. So technology is always going to be catching up to what we imagine the future is going to look like. And certainly it's the case in, in the metaverse because, you know, what you, you can see the, the, the limits of the technology that we have today, you know, the fidelity, the accessibility as well. You can't just plug yourself in and, and you know, sit back and relax and all you've got is a couple of electrodes sticking out your head. You know, that's, that's way off in the future, you know. Um, but where we are just now, we have to accept that it's, you know, a, uh, you know it, it's a bit of Roblox, it's a bit of Minecraft. The immersion is a bit like um, sitting in one of the um, MMOs like uh, EVE Online or World of Warcraft or Elder Scrolls Online, something like that. That's, that's the environments that we have to sort of imagine ourselves in at the moment. Um, science fiction is great for, for painting the what-ifs. I think what's really good for science fiction, for people to sort of look at science fiction is to say what can go wrong. So we know that where Facebook is right now, Facebook is now saying we are going to be a metaverse company. But one of the signals there is like, well, do I want to live in a world where Facebook is feeding me this new reality? Because we've seen what Facebook is feeding me already with an algorithm. So I have a choice. Um, and this is one of the most powerful things, I think, um, that we as people and humanity is, is to understand is that I have a choice to, uh, I have a choice in which kind of metaverse I want to build and which one I want to participate in. Um, and I think these are the things, the really important things that we can take lessons from in science fiction is, do I want to build the science fiction version that I know can go wrong? Or do I want to try and help build a much better version that I know um, will actually have a positive impact on society? What's the what? What would you say, Theo, is the um, way in which right now there is this kind of, um, you know, uh, VR is the best kept secret. Uh, people, because they, you know, some have only kind of 
been in a VR experience that, that you know, maybe made them nauseous or they, they went to the uh, local Dave and Buster's and paid five bucks to shoot some dinosaurs, right? <laughs> what do you think the um, VR iteration or um, innovation that will, will really wake the world up? What will be the killer app in your mind that will, uh, that will, will make VR uh, more ubiquitous? Um, so VR itself, uh, we have the hardware problem, which is that the headsets are really sort of cumbersome. And like you say, there's like the nauseous angle and things like that, vertigo and stuff like that. To some extent, that's already been uh, sort of looked at. And we use VR in sort of healthcare a lot, a, a lot for pain management and things like that. People with PTSD, phantom limb syndrome, that kind of thing. The limitation is uh, at the moment is like cost. It's not so much the content, it's the cost of the hardware. So there's uh, the cost of the headsets as well, for one. There's a cost of the equipment like PCs to run it. I think once we get to a point where um, VR and AR or mixed reality kind of sort of merges and our headsets are nothing more than like a Geordie LaForge headband um, and it's at a price point that everyone can understand and there's a battery life involved and it's, and it's processed in the cloud rather than on my desktop or on device. I think that's another part of the, the equation is the infrastructure needs to be very much cloud-based. All the rendering and all the tech needs to happen um, and the content is streamed to the device, um, whether that's tablet, phone, headset. Um, the infrastructure part is, more, is probably more important at this point to nail before we get to the content. Then we can start, you know, then we can start building the content, understanding some of the limitations, but also some of the um the advancements that we have um and then we need to sort of understand what kind what kind of content do people want to engage in is it purely that i just want to be running around in a world um a virtual world environment and just doing my own thing is it because i want to be engaged in an educational point of view um is it because i'm training to do something as part of my job i think there's many different aspects to this it's not just it's not just going to be one killer app um that'll make or break vr i think it's it's going to be like a like the te technologies that are converging to make the metaverse it'll be a convergence of different types of content that'll make or break um vr as well you know, i would love to ask you kind of just on the more personal side uh how did you become interested in all these technologies i i, I think i read online somewhere that you began your career in uh law right uh, yeah, <laughs> which uh, I'm a fellow escapee from the legal world, so uh, I, I can really <laughs> sympathize to you on that. But um, take us through your personal journey. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you became interested in these things, how you pivoted to a career as a futurist. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you can't see it because it's blurred in the background, but I've got bookshelves and every single book on it is science fiction. So, I mean, when I was a, a lad in, in school, in primary school, um, I would run home um for for tea um and at 5 p.m or 6 p.m um on bbc2 one of the channels was um star trek and i would make sure that i was always home for star trek watching on a black and white portable tv for anyone out there you know black and white this is what we used to put up with <laughs> um and and you know and that was my sort of that was my weekly fix of science fiction and i read comics and stuff like that and so for very early on, I was kind of influenced by science fiction and visions of the future. And then when I grew up, you know, you kind of sort of have to get serious. And, you know, I picked law as a, law as a topic. 
Um, and funnily enough, it was LA Law. I uh, used to watch uh, running around um, sure. Victor Cifuentes in his suit and stuff. And I was like, oh, this looks really good. I want to be a lawyer now. Um, and then I found out that the British legal system was boring as hell. Um, the American so, is as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I abandoned that um, and I left after two years and I went to work in a bank and I programmed mainframe stuff uh, on COBOL and uh, Kicks and IMS. Uh, and, um, and then I started working in um, program management. So I would run big change programs and technology change and stuff like that. And at that point, I started to write about the technology and write about business trends. And um, for me, it was really interesting to take what I, what I was seeing on a daily basis and try and translate that into why, why is it wrong and why, why can't we do something better? Um, and then I started looking at the technology trends behind it. So, you know, you were looking at um, collaboration. There was, so, there was a whole social enterprise or enterprise social movement, IoT. And it was essentially me just like following different trends and then trying to get ahead by trying to think, right, well, if that worked with this, trying to join dots, essentially. And then um, I got picked up by a company called Software AG, which is a bit like Tipco. Um, and it's a, it's a German company, uh, maybe I think the second or third largest just under SAP. And um, they were like an IoT infrastructure kind of software company. And I got picked up by them to be their chief evangelist. So of it, so I started writing proper proper articles instead of blogs sure. um, and then doing speaking and stuff like that. And they put, you know, I spoke with their clients to paint them a bigger picture of, you know, what the world was going to look like in five, 10 years time, why to get excited about technology and stuff. And, and it was it was at a, diff, uh, a particular conference, and someone says, "Oh, you're a bit like a futurist." And I was like, well, "What's that? I'm just doing what I do," you know. Um, and they were like, "Well, it's because it's someone who studies trends and talks about the future and stuff." And I, I never really put the two and two together. I just kind of sort of enjoyed what I was doing. Um, and then I looked into it and I thought, "Yeah, okay, fair enough. I can see that." And you know, I talk about technology from that point of view as a futurist. There are other ones who talk about education, economics society, everything else like that. But I purely concentrate on the technology side of things. And so that's when I kind of sort of started saying, okay, fair enough, I'm a futurist. I don't come from a classical background with, um, you know, an education in futurism. It's literally, I fell into this uh, purely because I was, you know, my, you know, my love of science fiction, my love of technology, my love of just being curious uh, about what's coming. Um, and that's kind of where it came from. So Theo, what do you imagine, you know, what are, what are, what are some of the things, what, what are your shock stats for the future for our listeners who are eager to see, you know, what do you, the impact of immersive technology in their lifetime? What is the thing that is coming that, that uh, they need to be ready teacher one for? <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the really interesting stuff I think is going to come out of um out of the metaverse is simply the the amount of data that's in there and and because of the level of simulation and compute power that's um that's required to basically handle it we may see uh, a type of intelligence emerge from that so while everybody is like trying to create an uh, an ai or uh, some kind of level of intelligence out of just feeding it facebook data and whatever the missing component here is how people actually interact with the environment around them. And if they're all doing that in the metaverse, you know, acting, 
you know, acting as they would in a physical environment, um, transacting, socializing, everything else, you've actually got this almost a, a, another dimensional layer of information that you can extrapolate from and understand. And so there's two interesting aspects. One is um, I could see that that could lead to something, uh, a level of, or, or some kind of new kind of intelligence that is, is born out of that um, over the next maybe 30 years or so. And the other one is, I don't know if you remember Black Mirror. Sure. You guys seen Black Mirror? Oh, sure. One of my favorite episodes is San Junipero. I don't know if you remember it. It's the one where there were uh, the people were um, end of life care, um, and they were basically jacking themselves into some kind of weird environment where they could relive the eighties. Well, that's that's essentially a metaverse there, um, and it was one of the less dystopian ones because it was actually such a feel good episode, and that really resonated for me because um, you could give end of life care to someone and basically plug them into uh, a metaverse environment where they feel happy again. Yeah. And, the, the, you know, they're completely removed from their physical sense and all the pain and suffering that they're feeling, um, but they're happy in, in this virtualized environment mm. um, to the point where maybe in the next hundred years, you could actually just continue to run around in there. Whatever you call essence or consciousness or whatever is distilled into a, some kind of digital form, and that's where your playground is. So, you know, living forever and life extension, I think nobody wants to live forever to 200 years. What's there to look forward to? Well, you don't have healthcare, you don't have a pension. You know, you have, um, why do I want to live 200 years and have this, you know, ailing body? What is that? Do I really want to have another career for another 100 years or 50 years? No, that's not what life is about. We are meant to enjoy life. Um, so if life extension, if you turn life extension into, well, let's just have this virtualized playground where I could take myself, my physical essence dies, but the rest of me lives on somewhere else. You know, we've got lots of moral and philosophical issues here. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to avoid those like the plague. You, um, you don't but, have to, don't do it on our account. We love the moral <laughs> and philosophical issues here. But, you know, that's, you know, that's a, a really interesting, you know, topical debate, moral debate, philosophical debate that you could have, you know, should we live somewhere else forever, somewhere else rather than physically. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, and then the other side is the darker side, which is, well, if I'm giving my essence to someone else, in a sense, what if they switch off the server? Well, if they can no longer afford the computing power, where do I go from then? That's me dead. In which case, well, you were going to die anyway. So, you know, enjoy life while you can. Sure. So, so uh, Theo, have you had a chance to look at some of the um, emerging kind of midware uh, VR technologies? You mentioned Unreal Engine and Unity as a, you know, the the commercial grade uh, game engines that we build in. But how about things like uh, Verbella or Engage out of Ireland? Have you looked at some of those social VR platforms where you can, you know, more efficiently and, and, and more cheaply develop locations and things like that where students could experience uh, school socially? Yeah, so I mean, I, uh, today, a couple of my calls have actually been about platforms. Um, with startups. So because Metaverse is such a hot topic, there's loads of startups spinning up now. Sure. Um, and a lot of them are trying to develop really thin client um, or web-based um, development tools. So where you've got Unity and, and Unreal, 
and they're very sort of heavy and, and uh, processor intensive, some of these people are actually removing that from, like I said, the desktop environment and sticking it in the cloud and just allowing anyone to come in because it's very much a case of make the tools as easy as possible for people to build environments. VR chat, for example, is another one which is quite successful. It's built on Unity, but they've just, I think they've just secured a Series D or a Series E race of $80 million to basically extend and build out their strategy. And there's a lot of things going on in there. Um, that's a really successful sort of platform. I know it's called VR chat. You know, don't let it, don't let that put you off the, the thing. People are building environments and worlds. You know, they're they're running conferences and 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 concerts in there as well where you can have you know up to a hundred thousand people running around concurrently at the same time um so there's a lot going on out there that people can choose from um a lot more easier development tools so you can you know essentially you're you're, you're given a, a blank room already and it's a case of just populating that room drag and drop You've got creator workplaces that are doing photogrammetry and LIDAR scanning. So immediately you can just like start throwing in environments straight away and make it look really familiar um, and high resolution as well. So you don't have to just use Roblox or Minecraft style graphics. You can throw in something really quickly um, and take what the community is building as well. This is the other thing, the really exciting part of the metaverse is that you've got this huge community that's doing a lot of work in terms of creating assets. You don't need to start from, from scratch and, and, and learn it all yourself. You can buy assets. This is why um, Unreal or, or Epic bought Sketchfab because of that huge community and that huge asset base to basically allow people to just pick stuff off the shelf, plop it in an environment and build straight away. Um, and it's the right way to go. Um, I've been speaking to startups who have um, apps built on the mobile phone to allow you to just wander around and scan buildings and, and objects and then upload it. And again, um, to basically use that in a marketplace environment so I can buy it and stick it into an environment, uh, you know, um, stick it into my, my virtual world. Um, and this is really great for, for teaching aids, for example. So there are people who are going out scanning you know, ancient Greek pantheons and stuff like that. And essentially you could grab that model, stick it in a 3D environment and just say, hey, today kids, we're going to learn about ancient Greece and look at this. You know, um, there's no need to look at a textbook. You can basically give it to them. They can look at it from either um, a VR headset or a tablet and they can walk around it in a, and it's all in 3D. And, you know, the teacher could say, you know, this is what happened here. Here's an amphitheater, blah, blah, blah. It, it, you know, there's no limit to the imagination of what you could do. And the tools are out there now that allow you to do it. Um, and I think that's, and it's only going to get easier and more accessible as the years roll on. Um, and I'm hoping to see a lot more investment, not just in the sort of NFT space sure. and, you know, in that the crypto market space at the moment, I want to see more VC investment into the tools that will allow creators to build and create. Theo, one of the things that Adam and I run into a lot is educators who are trying to evangelize some of these technologies in the education space is sort of a, a, a boy who cried wolf sort of situation where because so many ed tech advocates and ed tech firms have kind of come through the space and said, let me sell you something that's going to that just completely change yeah. your life forever. It's going to revolutionize the classroom. And, you know, I, I, I hate to 
pick on one technology, but 10 years ago, the perfect example in my career as a teacher was the smart board. The smart board was going to change everything. This was going to revolutionize your classroom. School spent ungodly sums of money on it. Uh, and we all know how that turned out. Um, what do you say to people who are skeptical of things like immersive technologies, things like uh, NFTs and things like AI, uh, and to, to convince them that this time it's different? This time, you know, we're not just the boy who cried wolf, that these things will actually revolutionize not just education, which is a particular interest to Ab and I, but society as a whole. Um, so if we pick on education, and I'm going to play the bad cop again in a way. Sure. Um, um, educational policy and the curriculum has to change with it. Absolutely. What you what what we've seen is that um, we've seen ed tech come along and say we're going to revolutionize everything, but it's the same curriculum, yeah. um, and it's the same method of teaching and stuff like that. So smart, you know, smart boards is a perfect example. We're going to change how educational. Well, you didn't because I'm still standing in front of it doing exactly what I did with a blackboard, talking to a bunch of teach uh, a bunch of students in exactly the same way. Right. I didn't restructure learning at all. I didn't you know, I take into account the you know individual needs of the t of the pupils or anything else like that. Or how people want to learn. It was a case of instead of a blackboard, we're going to use this. Right. But you're going to learn exactly the same way. What I'm hoping for is that with immersive technologies and things, is that it's the kids who will push for the change, who will say, "I don't want to learn the same way as I did last. I, you're just going to teach me." With a headset this time, uh, that's not what I want to do. I want you to teach me completely differently. I want you to adapt the curriculum to the technology, not the other way around. Um, and and I think that's something that needs to happen. Unfortunately, we've got people in power who set the policies who are absolutely clueless. And I'm not, you know, I, you know, I speak for, you know, in terms of the UK, you know, and I'm pretty sure it's much the same way everywhere else. Where I don't really, really care. They've got a budget and they'll spend it somehow. Um, right. But they don't want to radically reform what education looks like because it's it's too scary. Um, and so what you get is like everybody will do exactly the same motions. We're going to radically transform things. And then, and then they'll find that they don't. They'll just throw some money at some initiatives um, and hope they get reelected another time. So, um, Theo, this is, this is my chance to jump in and push back. <laughs> oh. I think this is exciting. I think we've gotten to a really interesting part in the conversation. Yes, I think you're right about the curriculum. Uh, but I also think the idea of school, right, decoupling uh, the daycare element from the learning has to happen. And so as you're talking about things like the blockchain and the intersection between the blockchain and VR, do we have an opportunity to dematerialize the school building? Has this pandemic created a space where we are going to have learning online and then you literally can't be standing in front of your students? You have to be in some type of online format, delivering instruction differently. Does the, does the, does the pen, are you imagining a pendulum swing back towards more uh, blackboards and smart boards and in-person learning, or do you think we're going to move towards um, more online learning? And so the daycare and the learning are, are going to be decoupled. Um, so it's interesting you say daycare, because obviously when we, when the pandemic hit, um, 
you know, all the parents and stuff were just like, I can't cope with running the house and learning and blah, blah, blah at the same time and doing my job and stuff. Right, right. Um, and that's, that's the thing, you know, that's the, I think that's a tricky part for fully online learning, which is, that, you know, if I have a child at home, I'm going to have to be at home as well to supervise what's going on. And I'm a parent. I'm not a teacher. It's not my responsibility. It is, but it isn't because I'm not trained, you know, um, sure. I think there's, there's, there's going to be a hybrid model at the moment, I think, um, which I, I think might emerge from the, the pandemic, which is, you know, some, some learning is going to happen at school. Some learning is going to happen at home. It's going to be self-directed and self-taught. I think we need to sort of ignite that curiosity again to sort of get people to sort of learn, I think, uh, or, or want to learn. I think the immersive side is an interesting thing because everybody knows how to play Fortnite, for example, and Roblox, and they create, and you know, and they create worlds in there and they create them for themselves and for their friends. And it's a great way to tap into that curiosity and say, right, well, build me something as part of the curriculum. Your task is to build something and then showcase it to the class. And it's almost like the, you know, the old show and tell kind of sort of stuff or the dioramas, instead of using dioramas to build like the volcano and the foaming thing with a couple of Mentos down a Coke bottle, <laughs> you know, build me something um, similar to that, but in Minecraft or in Roblox, again, engage the kids where they are. Um, and I think that's really take the education to where they are and where they want to be rather than pull them out. Um, we're going to struggle with the sort of hybrid thing because parents are going to be quite reluctant to have to do the whole supervision stuff. But if we can structure it in a different way. Um, the other thing as well is I, I came off a podcast just before this one and we touched on education. And one of the things was um, in the UK, you know, when you hit sort of 12 and 13, you're almost forced to pick subjects which are going to define what your career path is. Uh, for the next, well, for the, you know, for the next, you know, decade uh, in terms of learning. And I think, and I went to a school um, a couple of years ago where I spoke to some of the head teachers, I spoke to the head teacher and then some of the head pupils. Um, and but that was one of the things that they were complaining about, which was, you know, why do I need to pick what my topics are going to be at 13 when I haven't got a clue what I want to do with my life? So Part of the problem, I think, is is removing the curiosity aspect because you're forcing kids to say, I need to pick a subject and I need to be an accountant or a lawyer um, or something at the age of 13 and I'm limiting my career choices and then I don't discover what I really want to do until much later, further down the line. And I think we need to uh, use this opportunity for learning, for online learning, for hybrid learning, to extend that to basically say you don't have to pick a topic and set your career path at 13 let's extend that let's give you the curiosity back let's let you build you know your own path your own ideas and stuff like right. that let's remove a lot of the entry criteria for universities to you know and the access to basically and, and rebuild that that path as well sure and that's what i would love to see coming out of that how many of us even have life figured that much out at 23 let alone <laughs> well i'm 48 and i still well i'm 49 actually and i still haven't got a clue what i want to do well, <laughs> you know, as you were talking theo one of the things that came to mind was maybe uh maybe the future will be informed uh by the past maybe we'll learn a little bit from uh 
you know, the, the, the Scottish castles and, and the Europe of old, where you, when you talked about uh, experts being brought to the children, you know, now you could basically stay in your castle, stay in your home, stay in your apartment, stay in your flat and be beamed in yeah. uh, any expert around the world. And so, you know, as long as that technology allows for engagement, my kids, my, my two, I have a second grader and a third grader who are currently doing online school. Right. And uh, I go back and forth between Mississippi and Florida. And, um, you know, quarterbacks matter. And what I mean by that is there are some people who are inclined to engage folks, whether it's VR, whether it's Zoom, whether it's and then there's some people who are just awful on Zoom. Right. Mm. And so there were teachers who were great in person uh, for whatever reason, maybe because, uh, you know, they they just, you know, they were used to that format. And then there are other teachers who weren't maybe as great in person, but have been just stars in the online space. I wonder, you know, what it will look like over time as these uh, school buildings dematerialize. And as you can buy, uh, you know, the fifth grade science class on Amazon for $29.99 and it comes with a live teacher. <laughs> I think that'd be great. Um, a live VR teacher. <laughs> yeah, I think we should... Um... Well, in a, in a sense, it's democratizing um, education. And, you know, um, it's no longer a case of, um, like you say, bringing experts in. Um, and I think there are loads of people who probably wouldn't consider a, a, a teaching career, primarily because uh, I think that if they're an expert in their field, then it's a massive wage drop or salary drop for, sure. for a start and that puts people off and then there's the training aspect so i don't know how long it takes but you know two three four years on top maybe or to convert what you've done already into a formalized teaching environment and yet look how many people are making money out of linkedin for example all the link all the courses on linkedin um people just you know can you know immediately spin up um, stuff that they've written on PowerPoint and then just present like this verbatim. And that's, that's a course that's teaching. Um, but I do think it would be interesting to bring either fixed format or live people like the ancient Greeks used to do, you know, when they just, you know, had basically everyone in this giant amphitheater or whatever on the outside. And they just plopped someone in the middle who was like some ancient wise teacher who would just like talk to the crowd and teach them, and impart their knowledge and it'd be great to be able to get to something like that but online and immersively where you know we could invite you uh, adam me hundreds of other different types of people where people could just learn and pick brains um and it would form part of you know some kind of curriculum where you learn aspects of different sub subjects and you you fall down that rabbit hole of i want to learn about science so i will do lots and lots of online and immersive learning about science from different people um, and not just one sort of teacher who's just, I guess, reading off a textbook that's about 50 years old. It strikes Amen. me that, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a bifurcation of the teaching profession into multiple different professions, right? On the one hand, now that content and instruction is infinitely scalable, mm -hmm. we no longer need loads and loads of experts in science, math, history, what have you, to deliver the content, but we still need people who are going to provide the love and the care for the pupils in their charge, yeah. um, still need people to provide that uh, supervision aspect that we were talking about that the parents just don't want to provide, right? Mm. So 
Um, you know, I wonder, you know, as we see the widespread adaptation of, of these technologies to the classroom, you know, will we see a few rock star teachers like Adam's talking about, you know, who are just best physics teacher out there. You're never going to top this guy in physics. He's going to deliver the content. Someone else on the other end who's trained in social and emotional intelligence and, and building communities is going to be caring for your child and curating the content. Yeah, I think I, th I think you'd be great. So that rock star example is is really good because, you know, before that person would only have access to, I don't know, 30 pupils at a time sure. in one fixed location. You suddenly give them an online platform and then you sub and then literally hundreds of schools could mm. subscribe to that guy or that girl. And then all of a sudden he's teaching thousands of kids at the same time. Mm. And they're building their curriculum and their, you know, school schedule around him, her, and many others in that same environment or that same format. Um, and that could that could literally change the landscape of, of, of education. The other thing as well, which I'd, I'd really want to see is more mentorship coming from different industries. Um, because I, I don't think that all the different industries um, – that kids go off to work in are close close enough to education to be able to say this is what really happens in the outside world. You've learned that in the textbook. You've learned how physics works, etc. This is how it's really applied in you know in finance and in, in manufacturing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it would be really good to see um, mentors. Yeah. So much yeah. like we much like we have mentors in our, in our career and, and and personal lives. I think it's it's really important for kids to get exposure to that kind of mentoring as well um, at an early age, because then they can they can sort of understand that that support is out there for them when they get to that level or when you know when they move right. on in uh, you know in their careers. You know the the idea of it's interesting. You know, again, I I went to a university to give a talk, um, and it was. Um, uh, sort of fourth year engineering students and IT students and things like that. And one of the things, all the sort of, all the things that aren't taught at university were the things that we had to end up, that we ended up speaking about. How do I do my taxes? What, what do I do to, to launch a business as a freelancer? How do I network? You know, how do I just go out and make connections with people? You know, uh, who, how do I find a mentor? That kind of thing. All these things are missing in school. Um, sure. And I think if we bring them in really early, kids are going to, you know, are going to have much more rounded and, you know, a much more rounded experience and be better prepared for when they leave school. Absolutely. Theo, we feel like we could uh, chat with you for hours and hours, man, but we know that <laughs> uh, your time is limited. Um, so we want to move on to our final segment, which we like to call the Furious Five. This is going to be Five yeah. questions that don't necessarily have <laughs> anything to do with what we've been talking about today. Okay. But, uh, they'll just be kind of fun, get to know you questions to kind of end the show on a, on a less serious note. So I want to start off with a question that uh, I feel pretty confident in who you are, that you're going to have a very strong opinion on this. All right. Of all of the actors who have taken the lead in Doctor Who, Ooh. which yep. is your favorite doctor and why is it your fellow Scott David Tennant? <laughs> um yeah i mean uh, so my favorite actor when i was growing up i was exposed to tom baker and sure. then it was uh, peter davidson um 
and then um, uh, I missed Sean per um, Pertwee, not Sean. His, no, no, Sean's his son. Um, I missed Pertwee because he became Baker. Um, but Baker's one of my favourites because he's yeah. just completely eccentric and off the wall. But like you say, um, yeah, David Tennant, he just brought something completely different. Um, there was, I loved um, Eccleston because yeah. there was a, a real intensity about him. Underrated for sure, right? Yeah, but I think he was one of these, he was, he was definitely, he did the right decision for himself, which was, I don't want to be pigeonholed here. You know, if I do three seasons, I'm just going to wreck my career. That's who you are for the rest of your life. Yeah, sure. yeah. But Tennant was great. I think he just, there was just some spark about him. And seeing the last episode when he was like, I don't want to go, you just felt that that just hit you straight in the for chest. Sure. For yeah. sure. Um, and everyone part. brings, yeah, go on. Oh, no, go yeah. ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say everyone brings something different. But I think for me, the two standouts are David Tennant and Tom Baker for completely different reasons. I, uh, I love the story that Tom Baker tells uh, where he talks about a guy that runs into him and tells him that, uh, you know, I I grew up in an orphanage and my life was miserable, but you made Saturday night good. You made Saturday night special. <laughs> and and Tom Baker shares that as like, a you know, this, this was the highlight of my career hearing that story. Um, great stuff. Second question of the Furious Five. What's your favorite sci-fi novel of all time? Um, it's Gateway by Frederick Pohl. Oh, I don't know that one. Okay. Right. Uh, lesser known. I mean, I love uh, 50s and 60s pulp sci-fi. Um, this one really spoke to me. Uh, I read it. I've got, uh, I think I've got about three different copies on the shelf. Um, I've also got a signed hardback as well, because I loved it that nice. much. Um, and it was also the reason why I went into the video games industry for a couple of years, because we were building a project based around that book. Uh, we were working together with um, Skybound Entertainment who did The Walking Dead um, the TV show they had optioned the book to make it into a TV sci-fi TV show um, and we basically pitched to them let's make the game based on the book game based on the TV show um, it's one of my favourites I would recommend it to anyone um, it's just, there's just something about it it's just great that's tremendous what's the best meal that you've eaten recently <laughs> um oh what's the best meal um i would probably say uh oh recently well last night we were out actually for um for chicken wings okay um and it was just chicken wings but there's about 50 different sauces that you can have with it okay um, um it's it's simple it's plain you know, in a sense, but when you start smothering it with the hottest sauces that you can think of, that's when it makes a difference. Um, aside from that, I'd probably go for sushi. I love sushi. Sushi's great. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, what is the best single malt scotch? <laughs> <laughs> oh, why'd you do this to me, man? Um... <laughs> you can have a top three. That's fine. We'll allow it. Um. So there's a few Japanese malts, which are really good um, from okay. Suntory, um, I re which I really like this. I've um, had a couple yeah. of those. Yeah, sure. Yamazaki is really good. Um, uh, Okintoshin is really nice. There's um, there's one which tastes like a fruitcake, which is bizarre. Huh. Um, but it's, oh, God, Highland Park. Okay. There's a blend of Highland Park, and I think it's the Viking one. 
um, which is really nice. Um, it's really tasty. Um, I really like sort of space sides and some sort of smoky sure. peat stuff. Not too smoky. Sure. Um, like Lafroig and stuff like yeah, that. But um, um, but space sides are really nice. How do you feel um, about uh, Talisker? Yeah, that's like that's uh, that's probably as uh, oh Oban. Open okay. fourteen, open fourteen years is really, really nice. Very there nice. we go. I only remember that now because um, two two American friends of mine came across for the the festival fringe, uh, which is going on just now in Edinburgh, and we basically did this tour of um, yeah, pubs where we could just drink lots and lots of different whiskies. But Open was a standout one, fourteen year. Excellent, excellent. The last question of the Furious Five. Uh, is really Adam's question. So at this point, I always hand the mic back over to him. We like to call this the contrarian question. Adam, oh, go ahead and take it away, on. my friend. Theo, what do you know to be true about the impact of blockchain on VR and education that other futurists might disagree with you on? Okay, so um, in my opinion, and it's born out of watching what's been happening with the NFT space, I think blockchain and education um, is it will it will allow one it will allow I think that the the decentralization of, of of educational content, but two it will allow um, the protection of the IP of that content. So you know if I create an online course, for example, uh, um, or, or or a talk or material for education. One, I can basically mint it on the blockchain and say, this is mine. I created this course um, and no one can actually take that away from me. But two, because of the decentralization, because of decentralization, that becomes democratized content and everyone can consume it. But I know that I was the creator of it. And I think right now, when you have a look at sort of courses and slide share and things like that, as soon as you put something out there, essentially someone's just going to rip it off. Um, but immediately, I think the blockchain uh, protects that provenance and protects that IP. Um, and you can essentially resell it on, but you will always be the, the architect or the blueprint of that of that particular content and that educational content. So I think that in itself, I think is really a powerful use case for blockchain. Um, and then how you, how you basically sell that on is whatever cryptocurrency you want to use, which is probably Ether, um, uh, Ethereum. Um, just to create smart contracts around that um, and then distribute that again, decentralized fashion across um, any VR platform or immersive platform. That's tremendous. Theo, we've had such a blast talking to you. It's such an honor Me to too. get you on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to learn more about you and your work? Um, yeah, so you'll find me on um, LinkedIn. That's where I sort of park that profile. Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at T-P-R-S-T-L-Y um, and on my uh, uh, newly knocked up website, which is metapunk.co.uk. Excellent. Thank you so much, my friend. Uh, you're always welcome back on the podcast anytime. We hope to talk to you again soon. Oh, anytime, Adam and Brian. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.